My name's Tamara Keith and I'm a paediatrician in London and I'm going to talk to you about the complications of prematurity. The complications of prematurity include respiratory, gastrointestinal, neurological and cardiovascular and long-term complications and we're going to briefly talk about all of them. So the respiratory complications include respiratory distress syndrome, you have gastrointestinal complications such as reflux and necrotizing enterocolitis. The baby might suffer an intracranial bleed. They might be left with a patent ductus arteriosus or have long-term complications such as chronic lung disease, cerebral palsy or retinopathy of prematurity. Respiratory distress syndrome, which you may see in some of your older textbooks called hyaline membrane disease, is due to surfactant deficiency. Lung surfactant is adequate by 30 to 32 weeks gestation, but before this, before 30 weeks of gestation, respiratory distress syndrome affects 50% of newborns, and it affects almost all of those born at less than 27 weeks. The causes of respiratory distress syndrome include mostly prematurity, and also include perinatal asphyxia, so what I mean by that is um, a lack of oxygen during delivery, so hypoxia inhibits surfactant production. Maternal diabetes delays surfactant synthesis. And at caesarean section, there's an increase of what we call transient tachypnea of the newborn, although this is not truly respiratory distress syndrome, but it does lead to respiratory distress of the newborn. So what happens in respiratory distress syndrome? There's interstitial edema, and congestion of alveolar walls which cause death of alveolar epithelial cells. The surfactant is inhibited by plasma protein leakage and surfactant is inhibited by the inflammatory response from lung injury. Premature babies don't have enough surfactant and so alveoli collapse and leads to stiff lungs and making it harder to breathe. This leads to increased work of breathing, decreased tidal volume, hypoxemia, and hypoventilation, leading to a respiratory acidosis. The clinical features include increased respiratory rate, nasal flaring, use of accessory muscles, you may hear that the baby is grunting, and they may have low oxygen levels. Management, first and foremost, we'd like to res prevent respiratory distress syndrome. And antenatal steroids given to a mother expecting a premature baby can prevent respiratory distress syndrome by increasing lung maturity. Ideally, these are given up to 24 hours before the baby is born and the mother would receive two courses of steroids. If they're given more than two weeks before delivery, it's unknown if this has a beneficial effect. So the nearer to delivery is better, but it does need to be at least 12 hours before delivery. Supportive treatment may be required once respiratory distress syndrome develops. It includes supplemental oxygen, CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure, and in severe cases, they may require ventilation via an endotracheal tube. Artificial surfactant can also be given, so it's actually put in the lungs via the endotracheal tube. It's injected down the tube and goes into the lungs, and this can be given prophylactically at delivery of the premature baby or can be given as what we call rescue therapy which is if the baby has developed severe respiratory distress syndrome and is given 
um, down the endotracheal tube in the same way. Complications of respiratory distress syndrome include pneumothorax, pulmonary interstitial emphysema, pulmonary hemorrhage, and in the long term, the concern is the baby may develop chronic lung disease and thereby they would go home on home oxygen and would always be um, a bit more prone to lung infections in the future. Gastrointestinal problems include feeding difficulties. The suck reflex doesn't develop until 32 weeks. So if you're born at less than 32 weeks gestation, you're more than likely going to need a nasogastric tube to um, receive your feeds. Premature babies are more prone to having reflux due to an underdeveloped lower esophageal sphincter and this um, makes them more prone to reflux. So they simply get um, the milk will come up from the stomach, up the esophagus and cause that same burning sensation that adults get, but obviously they can't vocalise this and they just get upset. They may um, get apneas, may have desaturations on their monitoring and generally just become unsettled. Um, a very important um, complication and sadly quite common is necrotizing enterocolitis. Necrotizing enterocolitis is inflammation and infection of the bowel leading to cell death. It is much more common in premature babies but it can occur in term babies and there's up to a 50% mortality and in some texts even says 70 to 80%. The signs and symptoms initially are non-specific and include apneas, feed intolerance, bradycardia and general temperature instability. As the disease progresses the baby may develop vomiting, bile stained aspirates, bloody stools, abdominal distension, abdominal tenderness and generalised sepsis. The abdominal x-ray may show what we call pneumonitis coli, which is basically bubbles within the bowel wall. They have dilated loops with thickened bowel loops, portal gas and free air, also known as pneumoperitoneum, so after a bowel perforation. This is an x-ray of a baby with necrotizing enterocolitis, and you can see that there is air within the bowel wall, there are dilated loops, and there's portal gas. This is a very classic x-ray of necrotizing enterocolitis. There's different stages of necrotizing enterocolitis, stage one, two, and three. Stage one is where there is suspected necrotizing enterocolitis. Stage two is when it is definite and the baby is moderately unwell. And stage three is when it is advanced. Stage one, just suspected neck, the baby is generally unstable but the x-ray may well be normal. Definite necrotizing enterocolitis, the baby will have temperature instability, absent bowel sounds, abdominal tenderness and there'll be definite signs on x-ray. An advanced neck, may, the baby may have hypotension, peritonitis, abdominal distension and bowel perforation. There are various treatments of neck Medical treatment, first and foremost, the baby is put nil by mouth, the umbilical catheters are removed, and broad-spectrum antibiotics are started. Surgical treatment is indicated when there is failure of medical management, clinical deterioration, and worsening of blood markers, if there is intestinal perforation, presence of a mass or stricture formation. 
The surgery is fairly major and may involve laparotomy with removal of the non-viable bowel. If this is not possible, if there is a very tense pneumoperitoneum compromising ventilation, there may even be peritoneal drainage. So this is insertion of a, ne a needle into the peritoneal cavity to relieve the gas in the abdomen. The complications of neck include short gut syndrome, strictures, failure to thrive and vitamin B12 deficiency in the long term. Another complication of prematurity includes intraventricular haemorrhage. This is bleeding inside the ventricles in the brain and is more common in preterm babies, especially those less than 1500 grams. 25% of those under 27 weeks will have an intracranial haemorrhage. The clinical features, most are silent and found on cranial ultrasound. Large haemorrhage may cause apneas, bradycardias, fits and low blood pressure. Investigations firstly would be a cranial ultrasound. The full blood count may show a fall in PCV and there may be coagulation abnormalities. There are different grades of intraventricular haemorrhage. Grade 1 is just a small bleed just on the surface of the ventricle. Grade 2 involves a small amount of blood in the ventricle. Grade 3 is a large amount of blood in the ventricles causing ventricular distension. And grade 4 is bleeding in the ventricles with involvement of the brain tissue around the ventricles. This is a picture just showing you what an intraventricular haemorrhage looks like on cranial ultrasound. Complications, grade 1 and grade 2, are rarely associated with problems with brain function. Interventricular haemorrhage can lead to hydrocephalus which needs a shunt to be inserted to relieve the pressure. Grade 3 and 4 is associated with cerebral palsy, epilepsy, visual problems and hearing problems. Grade 1 and 2 generally require no treatment. Grade 3 and 4 may require a shunt insertion if there is hydrocephalus. But in the long term, what is required is follow-up for developmental outcome to see what is going to happen and what support can be given in the community to improve the outcome. Periventricular leukomalacia is white matter injury. This is ischemic in nature and you end up with focal necrotic lesions in the brain. The risk factors include antenatal antepartum haemorrhage, an infection, preeclampsia or patent ductus arteriosus. So before we have talked about the hemorrhagic lesion of the interventricular haemorrhage and now we're talking about the ischemic lesion, PVL. The pathology is first and foremost you get a lack of oxygen, the ischemia resulting in cell death and necrosis and this is seen as echodensities on a cranial ultrasound. You then get liquefaction and cavitation resulting in cyst formation and the end result is the formation of scar tissue and atrophy of the white matter. Again this is classified into four grades, grades one to four depending on the severity of the situation. The most important complication of PVL is cerebral palsy, which occurs in 94% of cases of grade three and above. Patent ductus arteriosus is an important cardiovascular complication. 
The ductus arteriosus connects the pulmonary artery to the ascending aorta. And in the fetus, the ductus arteriosus is required to bypass the lungs to shunt blood from the right side of the heart to the left. Postnatally, closure of the ductus allows blood to flow to the lungs to become oxygenated and travel around the body. So if you look at this diagram, you can see how the ductus arteriosus is connecting the pulmonary artery to the aorta. At birth, the pulmonary resistance falls as lungs fill with air. The blood flows through the patent ductus arteriosus from left to right. Delayed closure leads to pulmonary hypertension, respiratory failure and acidosis. Risk factors for patent ductus arteriosus include prematurity, respiratory distress syndrome, fluid overload and sepsis. There are hemodynamic consequences of having a PDA. So there's a development of a left to right shunt and this is heard in the form of a systolic murmur. It results in increased blood flow to the lungs which results in respiratory distress and increased blood return to the left atrium causing left heart dilatation. It can lead to pulmonary hypertension and heart failure. The clinical features of a PDA include tachycardia, bounding pulses, a murmur and hepatomegaly which would indicate the development of heart failure. Investigations include chest x-ray and echocardiogram. Most preterm PDAs will close spontaneously but if symptomatic some form of medical or surgical management may be indicated. So medical management includes fluid restriction, diuretics, indomethacin or ibuprofen, Surgical management includes ligation of the PDA and the child is left with a left thoracotomy skull. And in asymptomatic cases, there may be closure by transvenous occlusion with a coil device. The complications of PDA, as we've discussed, include heart failure, can also include infective endocarditis, pulmonary hypertension and reversal of the shunt leading to something called Eisenmenger syndrome, and if in substantial left to right shunting, it puts the infant at increased risk of necrotizing enterocolitis, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and even death. The long term complications of prematurity are importantly neurodevelopmental, so include learning difficulties, behavioural problems, and cerebral palsy. Premature babies may be left with visual problems caused by retinopathy of prematurity or chronic lung disease, leading to a long-term oxygen requirement and they may be discharged from hospital needing home oxygen. The Epicure study looks at long-term survival and outcome of babies born at less than 27 weeks. And at less than 24 weeks, at 24 weeks, only 36% will survive delivery. And of those, only 28% have no long-term disability. On the upside, at 26 weeks, 75% survive labour and 61% will survive with no long-term disability. Thank you very much.